0: We're walking through this letter together. We find ourselves in the fourth chapter of John. And so we're excited about unpacking uh, what John has to say for us uh, in this passage. Now, in the, on June the 25th, 1967, June the 25th, 1967, over 400 million people in 25 different countries gathered around their televisions, a satellite broadcast sent around the world in order to hear the Beatles. Some of you remember this. You probably had mullets and long hair and Flowered bell-bottom jeans and things like that. And some of you saw videos of this much later in life. I'm in that category. You gathered around your television to watch the Beatles debut for 400 million viewers in 26 countries the song All You Need Is Love. In fact, it was a worldwide push to try to bring unity into the society. In the midst of the 60s, there were civil rights turmoil. There was uh, uh, war conflicts in Vietnam. There were all kinds of issues going around. You had the love movement moving in. And so there was this idea that somehow if we all got around our TV and watched uh, Ringo and McCartney sing a love song, it would fix all of our problems. Well, I assume you figured out by now it did not fix all of the world's problems. Uh, in fact, we might argue it caused a few more, right? But the idea is, is that, that we're always looking for love. We're trying to grasp love in society and family and governments, in our organizations. We're always trying to get a hold of love. And love is one of those funny things. Do you know? that this year, back in February of this year, it is estimated that Americans spent $145 apiece on Valentine's Day. $145 apiece. It is estimated that in Valentine's Day of 2020, $27 billion was spent on the holiday of love. $27 billion. Hallmarks got us fooled, don't they? $27 billion on love the idea is is that we're always trying to figure out what love is and the problem is is that it's broken everywhere we look love is broken in every way even the way in which we use the word love is often broken we will gather with family around the uh the home going of one of our loved ones and we will grab them and through tears say we love you and then the next week we will scream with pizza in our hand we love football We can mix the words together. We can seem to lose its definition. We're always looking for it, and the world's looking for it. The world's looking for love. The world will search for it in relationships. It'll search for it in authority. It'll search for it in power and in acceptance. It will look for it in broken ways in many places. It will try to find the well that will quench their thirst, though it never will. Because the world's definition of love is simply this. I love whatever makes me happy. And when it stops making me happy, I don't love it anymore. And that's not the definition of love from Scripture. In First John chapter 4, God, through the Apostle John, will give us what true love looks like. We will look today at true love. What is love? How do we define love? And what effect does love have on us? In fact, if you have your copy of God's Word open, you can just look there in verse 8, and you'll see kind of John's summation pinnacle statement. God is love. That's where we're headed this morning. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4. Let me read to you verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you now through the next few moments as we dive into this topic of love and and Lord, we confess up front that we are bombarded with definitions of love all around us. Uh, the world will champion love that puts selfishness at the center. The world will champion love that puts personal desire and sinful flesh at the center. The Lord Lord will champion love as some form of everyone's accepted or everything's okay. And Father, we're just bombarded with it. We're bombarded with a $27 billion industry that wants us to buy love. We're bombarded with a pop culture that wants us to just sing about love and expect it to fix things. But Father, as we gather in this room, we understand that those definitions won't work. Those definitions of love will not carry us at the graveyard when we're weeping. Those definitions of love will not help us through the hard days of marriage. Those definitions of love will not gather our strength when parenting hits a wall. And certainly those definitions of love will not carry the church to do the mission that it's called to do. And so, Father, I pray over the next few moments as we look at what love really is. God, I pray you would show us where we have gotten it wrong, where we've missed it. Convict us, Lord. Show us what true love looks like. Point us again to the beauty of Christ and his love for us. Father, I pray that over the next few moments, your word would wash over us. And we would hear and see and experience true love from the scripture, Father. From God in the flesh. From Christ himself. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the third time in the letter of John that we've crossed this topic of love. Uh, John tends to go back to the love song, if you will. He's finding this topic to be important in the church, but where he's particularly taking this topic is in the congregation. He is not necessarily talking about marriage love. He's not necessarily talking about parental love. He's not talking about loving your neighbor. In this particular section, he is specifically talking about the unique, the particular love that the body of Christ is to have for one another. When we say body of Christ, we mean those who have come to Jesus, who have confessed him as Lord and Savior, who have been purchased by his blood, saved and redeemed, and knitted into the family of God of which Christ is is the head. And so John is talking about this particular love found in the body of Christ. But what we'll learn from this text is that the body of Christ's love is to flow into every other part of our life. We will learn from this text that if we do not get God is love correct, we won't get it right in our marriage, in our home, in our society, or in the world at large, that we must get it right from the beginning. And so in the text, John lays out for us what love is, where it came from, and what response we are to have to it. We will learn the definition of love, gentlemen. I'm going to help you today learn the definition of love. I wives, I'm going to help your gentlemen learn the definition of love. Then they won't have to spend $145 on Valentine's day digging out of a hole, right? So look with me in your scripture and let me find for you three truths about love from the text that God teaches us this morning. Truth number one, in God, true love is defined. In God, true love is defined. To say it this way, the definition of love is found in God. The definition of love is found in God. We don't find the definition anywhere else in all the world, but in God. Look with me at verse seven and eight. Let me follow along. You follow along with me as I read verse 7 and 8. Notice with me first verse 7. Beloved. Now we need to pause there because John will use this term a lot. He's been using it. He will use it again. He also likes to use the term little children. I love this. This is the warmth of a pastor who cares for his people. He wants them to know and understand God and get it right. He's not scolding them. He's not fussing at them. Though he will correct them, though he will teach them, he literally loves them. Isn't this good that when you're about to get a lesson on love, you get it from a person who loves isn't it good that when you're about to get instructed on something, you want the person who's instructing you to actually walk it out in their own life? John is walking out what he's talking about. And so he says, beloved, my little children, those that I love, and now notice what he says about love. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and, and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is Love. Now, there are two phrases in verse 7 and verse 8 that help us here. First, he says in verse 7, love is from God. And then he will summarize that. He will build up his point. He will get to the top of his mountain of love by saying in verse 8, God is love. Now, think about what John is doing. He's taking all of the collection of the Old Testament teaching about God's covenant love for his people. He's taking all of the eyewitnesses' accounts of Christ dying on the cross. He's gathering up all the terminology we find in the Bible describing to us the love of God. He's pulling all that together. And in one simple sentence, he will, with the most clarity and simplicity and be very explicit, he will say, God is love. He will gather all of that up and he will boil it down to this ultimate sentence, God is love. Now, I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say love is God. Now, you might think that's semantics or a way of playing with words, but what he does say is he says God is love. Why? Because God is not found in the mystic events of trying to love one another. God is not found in the works of the world trying to do good. God is not found in the midst of that. God is found and then love flows out. The definition of love is God, not that we will somehow love enough in order to encounter God. You will hear people in the atheistic world, in the omni-religion world that will say, just love, do acts of love, there is love, God must be there. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that where God is, there is love, but just because you're trying to love in your own effort doesn't mean you found God, because God is the definition of love. His very nature and essence is love. Love, now think about this for a moment. He is reminding us that love is not based on a feeling. It's not based on butterflies in our stomach or sweaty palms. It's not based on whether she'll say yes or no on the fifth grade note you slid across the table. That's not where love is found. Love is found in God. The God who is passionate for his people and controls after all things, that wants to desire all things. And you know what I find interesting about this? Do you know what that means? If we are determined from Scripture that God is love, do you know what that means? That means the definition of love is not found here. It's not found in this fallen and broken world. It's found in the far country. It's found from somewhere else. It had to intrude into this created world. It had to come across from the other side of eternity. You see, God is love, and therefore we needed a definition outside of where we are. We needed a definition that will intrude and display the sin and move away the darkness and come from somewhere else. I won't find the definition of love in the feeble attempts of the poetry of Shakespeare. I will find it in God and God alone. This is the picture that he gives us. That true love is found in God. Now notice what he says about that. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. Because God is love, let us love. Verse 7 And now in verse 8, he'll give us the the negative to the positive. If positive is because the very being of God means we should love if we call ourselves with God, then the negative is simply this. Anyone who does not love does not know God. He's simply saying that if you don't understand and experience the love of God, if you don't share love for people, if you don't share the love that God has for others, then you don't know God. I want to drill in on this for just a moment. Notice what he's saying. He's not saying that if you have a hard heart towards people, that you have an emotional problem. He's simply saying if you have a hard heart towards people, you've got a salvation problem. You've not got an emotional problem. You've not got something you need to just work on. You may, in fact, not know the God who's transformed you. Because if you've met the very God of love, you will act like him. He will change you. He will move you. He simply says you cannot know God or you cannot know love if you do not know God. God, it's not possible. Now you might say, well, pastor, does that mean that my neighbors down the street who's been married 40 years and are not Christians, they don't love each other? No, no I'm not saying that. Does that mean that a, an atheist or a, a pagan or a faithful Jew or, or a faithful Buddhist or a faithful Muslim cannot love their children? No, I, I'm not saying that. I believe in common grace. Let us be clear for just a moment. I believe in the common grace of God. Common grace is simply grace of God that all people experience, whether they're Christians or not. Common grace would be the sun came up this morning. All the lost people in Dallas County felt the sun just like all the Christians felt the sun this morning. Common grace is that it rains on the crops and the crops grow and and lost people eat and saved people eat. There is common grace of God. And even in the fragments of love, there is common grace. For God is infused in the Imago Dei, the creation of man in his own image, love. So yes, there is some fragment of love in the marriage of the lost person or in the parenting of the atheist. I would not push back and say that's not there, but I would simply say this. John is making clear that true love, full love, unique love, particular love, God fulfilled love. And if you look down at verse 12, it will say the perfected love is found in those that are born of God. And so what does this mean? This means if you want your marriage to work, you must know the love of God. If you want your parenting to be fulfilled and perfected in the eyes of God, you must know the love of God. If you want to make a difference in the church, you must know the God of the church. If you want to make a difference in society, in others, in serving people, then you must know God. Why? Because God is the very definition of love. We do not find a definition outside of Him. This is not an ethical dilemma, brothers and sisters. This is a salvation issue. Love is found in God. Now, notice what happens when we understand this. Look with me again at verse 7 and 8. He gives us commands. Let us love one another. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There's the command. In fact, if you look in verse 7 where he says, let us love one another, he'll use that phrase three more times in just our few verses this morning. There is a command here to act like God. Why? Because if we call God our Father and God is love, therefore we should love. If the God who's defined His definition of love is found in God and you come to Christ and you've been saved, you've been born again and the spirit of God, God in the spirit enters inside of you, then the very God of love now is working on the inside of you. Therefore, you should love people because your daddy loves. If I can be a little more candid, you should love. That's the picture. That's what he says. You should be like Him. You should have his DNA. You should walk in his ways. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, be imitators of the Lord. Be imitators of God because of his love for us. Act like him. Why? Because love is transforming. Notice again what we find in this text. John says, God is love, therefore love one another. He doesn't say, God is love, therefore feel queasy in your stomach. He doesn't say God is love, therefore have sweaty palms when you see that cute girl or manly man, right? That's not what he says. He says because God is love, love other people. Too often, brothers and sisters, we get lost in what we think love should be when God is telling us from his word it is a concrete action of doing and serving other people. Love Others. Now, John will take it a step further because he's defined love now in God, but then he will give us the ultimate display of love. In God, true love is defined. God is love. We find it in God. But in Christ, true love is displayed. The very pinnacle of the definition of God is love is seen in Christ. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. Notice what John does here. He brings us to the Trinity, to the second part of the Trinity, God the Son. He says this in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now I want you to notice what John does. In verses 7 and 8, John tells us God is love. You know what? That's really cool to know. I'm so glad God is love. But you know what? If he never loved me, it don't make a hill of beans, does it? Like I'm glad, I'm glad there are people around the world that love one another, but if they don't show it to me, it's not affecting me. And so what John does is in verse seven and eight, he says, God is love. There's the definition. But then in verse nine and 10, he says, and this is how he loved you. He sent his son for you. You see, he gets specific with his love. If I were to tell you that I love my wife, but I never spent time with her, I never talked to her, we didn't live in the same house, we were never around each other, we didn't share anything together, you might ask me, really, do you love her? Is that really true? And so what John is simply doing is saying this, the definition of love is God, and the deliverer of God's love is Christ. He has brought it to us. He has made it known. He has brought it into our world. And notice how the text describes Christ. Notice what this love does, this transformative love of God. Notice how it walks us down this road of forgiveness. Listen to the words that he says. First, he says that he is his only son, now, we find John using this term again that he's used before in his oral arguments that he will once write down. We know it as John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, the word only here certainly means singular, as in God doesn't have multiple sons. But the word is much more than singular. The word has to do with uniqueness. It has to do that there's one and only. So think about the love of God for you and for me. When we needed rescuing, God looked over heaven and determined what would he send. He could have sent Gabriel. He could have sent David. He could have sent Moses back. He could have sent Seraphim and Cheraphim and all the angels of the Lord. He could have sent thunder and fire and water and storm and hail and locusts. But no, he sent his only son. His unique and one and only son. Yesterday, my son turned 13. Can you believe his mom is that old? He turned 13 and he wanted a present a couple of weeks ago. So praise the Lord for Amazon. We pull it up. We find what he wants. We click ship. It's in the mail. He's already gotten it. Wakes up on his birthday talking about presents. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You better look back at that Amazon cart. You already got that present. Well, then he begins to scheme his grandparents. What can I get from them? What can I get from the other grandparents? What do you think I'll get from this person, that person? He knows not to call his uncles. They cheapskates. He ain't getting nothing from them, right? Right. But he starts working down that list. Think about it this way. We're coming up on Christmas. It's not far away. You'll begin to ask your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, what do you want for Christmas? And you start taking notes and you will making a list. And I'll guarantee you this. If you ask them on December the 26th what they want for next Christmas, they'll already have a working list going on. You want to know why? Because we always want something else. We need something else. We want to find something else. But listen to me now. John says God sent his one and only son. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing else behind him. There is nothing else more glorious and more wonderful and more beautiful and more satisfying. There is nothing else that will display the love of God any better. It's not like he sent Jesus and then he's going to go down and send an angel later. It's not like he sent Jesus and he's going to send Moses back another day. No, when he sent Jesus, he sent the one and only son. The love of God displayed in Christ. Notice what else he says about Jesus. He says not only did he send his one and only son, but he sent his son so that they might live through him. He's showing us what love does. The effects of this love of Christ displayed for us that we might live through him. You know what John is reminding us? We had a death sentence our, our prognosis was set. We were dying. We were passing away. We would spend eternity in hell. There was no way in order to change that. There was no way in order for us to get out of that. We were dead men and women walking towards an eternal grave, and we needed something in order to rescue us, to revive us, to change us, to bring about birth in us where death reigned. And the Bible says he sent his one and only son so that we may have life. This is why we sing about the love of Jesus. Why? Because when we do gather around that grave and we hold that loved one, and we weep with tears and we say we love you, we can also say because of the love of Jesus, we will see you again. Why? Because God's love brings life, not death. God's love changes from darkness to light. God's love is transformative. God's love in Christ does what we could not do. Now notice with me how he does it. Look at the words again of verse 9 and 10. He says in verse 10, in this is love that we were, that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation is a pretty big word. We don't work into our normal vocabulary on any given day. You're, you're not going to work that into a sentence. When you order Zaxby's after church today, I can guarantee it. If you do, by the way, film it, send it to me. I'd like to see that. Propitiation is simply a simple way of understanding this is is that it is wrath satisfying sacrifice. It is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. It is a substitute that took our place, that turned the wrath of God of sin and fulfilled it. We had enemy with God. We had enmity between us and God. Our sin separated us from God. And God is righteous to judge sin. And He is right to judge us. He is perfect and holy. And it is not outside of His love to hold us accountable in our sin. That's what good, godly, just parents do. But instead of holding us accountable, He held His Son accountable on our behalf. John is not talking about the incarnation, though he has spoken about that before. He's talking about the atonement, the atonement where Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, the atonement where our sins were laid on his shoulders, where Galatians would tell us the curse was laid on him and he felt the wrath of God. He became our sacrifice. He became our atonement. He became the lamb that was slaughtered for us. Propitiation just simply means God's wrath was coming down on sin and Jesus took that wrath for us. A wrath satisfying substitute. This is who Jesus is. This is the love of God. This is why John would say in John 1:29, when he saw Jesus coming to the waters to be baptized, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the one who has come in order to cure us, the love of God that has come to rescue us and wash us clean, the love that would transform us. Thinking on this idea that God sent his son in order to save us. Notice the words that are used there. He says it was made manifest. You see that verse there in verse 9. And then in verse 10, it says, and God sent him. We should stop for just a moment and think about the love of God. Do you realize that when God sent his son, you and I, verse 10, notice what verse 10 says, in this love that we have loved God because he loved us, not that we have loved him. Do you, do you realize That when God made this decision to send his son in eternity past, he knew that we would not want him, that we would rebel against him, that our sin would be burning against him, that we would wave our fist at him. And yet out of his love, unmerited, undeserved, lavishing it upon us, he sent his son. Can I just give you one simple application of love? Love moves regardless if it's necessary. Or better stated this way, love moves regardless if it's reciprocated. Love moves. God moved on our behalf. John Calvin, reflecting on this very passage of Scripture, thinking about God sending His only Son and and to die for us and to bring us into His love, he, he wrote these words, he says, A more than wonderful goodness which ought to ravish our minds with amazement. We ought to read about God sending His Son to save us and the love of God He's poured out on us and our minds should be ravished with amazement. We should be blown away in what God has done for us. That he would send Christ. Paul would write to Timothy in Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, these words. He would say, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. God did this. This is love. That God would send his son to rescue us. To save us. And and let us just pause here and, and we'll get to the last point. Sometimes we struggle with the love of God. Sometimes we find ourselves in a, in a hard place, in a relationship or a job decision or financial. We look around us right now and, and certainly we can all kind of be in the boat of the last year or so has just been chaos. Pressure from every, our jobs have changed their organizations, our, our schools have changed. We're in the, the new cycle of politics. There's a virus that certainly made some of us sick and, and caused our lives to change. And, and so we can find ourselves, if we're not careful, we may never articulate it out loud, but we can find ourselves thinking in our heart of hearts in the back of our minds. God, do you care? God, do you love us? God, where are you? God, what's, why uh, has this not changed? And this is what John would say to us. John would say, before you ever doubt the love of God, stare at the cross of Christ. Think about it this way. If God met all of your needs except salvation, It wouldn't add up to much by the end of your life, would it? I mean, think about the nation of of Israel trapped in captivity. If God had rescued them out of Egypt after 400 years and brought them to the promised land and gave them milk and honey, but made no provision for their soul, they would still die and go to hell when they found their death. If God rescued your marriage and and your home and gave you all the, the money you need to survive, but never sent a son to die for you, what love is that? What purpose would there be? And this is what John is pointing us to, that the pinnacle of the definition of God's love is Christ on the cross. So anytime I find myself in a pity party, wondering if God loved me, I will stare at the hill called Golgotha and I will look at my savior busted and bleeding and the scars on his body. And I will hear him scream, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I will be reminded that he loves me and he died for me and he's brought me life. And if he never does another single thing, it's still worth it. It's still worth it. Why? Because behold, the Savior on the tree. What love is this? It should ravish our minds. So we've looked at the definition of love and the display of love in Christ. And so the only question left is, what do we do with it? What's the response of God's people? What, what is our response to this? Danny Aiken would put it this way. He would say, our act was sin and God was to love and to sin. He loved us and he sent his son. So now what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? Well, let me give you the third and final truth from the text about love. And that's simply this. In us, true love is demanded. We have a response to play. Look again at the text. We'll survey it quickly. Verse 7, let us love one another. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Verse 10, in this love that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son. Now, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You see that word ought there? That's a good old Southern English word, right? You ought to know better. You ought to do better. You ought to fix that. That's exactly what Paul or John is calling us to. Because of the love we've experienced in God through Christ, we ought to love one another. How can one say they've met Jesus and not love people? When you see the Jesus who died for people, how can one say that they've met God and love one another and not love people? Because God is calling us to love one another. And so we have in this text love now. Loving one another in the body of Christ means we got to think about three things always. we got to keep this in front of us. I'm fixing to help you love the hard people in the church, all right? Stay with me, right? If you don't know who the hard people are in the church, it's probably... Okay, never mind. Here's the idea. Well, I'm joking, by the way. Here's how you love people in the body of Christ. Here's how you love people. First, First, you remember that every single person in the body of Christ is equal. They're equal. What do I mean by that? Are there some here that know the Bible better than others? Absolutely. Are there some here that have been walking with God longer and they're in a place of maturity that others are not? Sure. Are there some here that have probably in their lifetime tithe more than I've made in my lifetime? Sure. Absolutely. They've been faithful. But here's what we all know for sure. Every one of us got here because of Jesus Christ. Every one of us got here because the cross is the place where we find salvation. Every one of us got here because Jesus came and died for us. Everyone in the body of Christ is in the body of Christ because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So to love one another is to remember we are all equal at the foot of the cross. To love one another is also to be humble. If I believe we're all equal, then I will believe none is greater than the other, and I will serve one another. Why? Because in humility, I will remember I was the low-down, dirty scoundrel that sent Jesus to the cross, and so were you. And so in humility, we can love one another. And then finally, we will think about this love as a family. And now we are knitted together. We are bonded for eternity as pilgrims on the narrow highway headed to that far country. We know we are bound by Jesus' love. We know we are pulled together because God is love, because God has loved us, because Christ has entered our life. Now we can love one another. We can do what we're called to do. And John is adamant that knowing God and loving people are connected together. You can't have one without the other. You can't claim to know God or be born again or know God and not love people. And you can't love people correctly unless you know God. He puts those together and says, this is the gospel. That you would meet the love of Christ and then display it in your life, proving you have met the love of Christ. You do not love your way into Christ, but if you've met Christ, you love your way going out. You share the love of God with others. Now I want you to notice verse 12 because here's the challenge. I was reading this this week and I was startled by what John is saying. No one has ever seen God. That's true. He's simply saying that no one has ever seen the unveiled, unmasked, full glory of God. When Christ walked the earth as the incarnation, God was veiled in flesh. When Moses was to see God on the mountain, he was hid behind the cleft of the rock and just saw the shadow of God passing by or the bush that was burning. There were theophanies, these mechanisms in which God appeared through something else in order to veil himself in the form of an angel walking on the road. But they've, we've never seen the full glory of God himself but notice what John says in verse 12 listen to the point that he's making no one has ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us did you catch it how will the world know God if they can't see him they will see him in us they will see him in the church you, you, you see what John is saying John is saying just as Christ revealed the love of God on the cross 2,000 years ago, the people who Christ have purchased is now supposed to display the love of God in front of people. God used Christ to display his love and now Christ, which lives in us, should be displayed to the world. We are now the mechanism to show the love of God to the world. And when the world sees us acting and behaving and living with a different priority, a different definition of love, a definition of love that comes from the kingdom of God, then and only then will they be able to know they need something different. And so he puts us in front of us and he says, here's what you do with the love of God. You act and behave. You ought to love one another. This is the picture of the gospel, that we who have come to Christ have been changed. And now because Christ lives in us, we will display the love of God for others. Notice the last words that he uses. He says, and his love is perfected in us. It's not that God's love was imperfection. It's that now it's having its full course. It's doing its full purpose. It's carrying out its goal of saving sinners and bringing life and transforming the world. The love of God is transformative. It is changing. Just like light runs darkness out of a room, the love of God is to run death out of a place. This is the picture of God's love. When you come to Christ, you are to love. John Stott, reflecting on this, would write these words. He says, no one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. As Calvin would say, if the thoughts of God's love has ravished our mind, if we've been to the cross, as Stott would say, then there's no way we can start living like our old selfish person who had the love definition of the world. It must be different. Probably the clearest place for the church to remember the love of the Lord is at the table. At the table of the Lord is where we find the culmination of the story of the gospel for the church. God is a God of signs and wonder and word. And one of the signs that he's given the church is the table, that we are to gather around the table over and over and over, remembering the love of God, just showing ourselves, preaching to ourselves the love of God. I want to invite you now to take out your elements that you picked up on the way in. There's a little bit of plastic wrapping you're going to have to deal with. So I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open both the top and the juice. So we will rattle them all together at the same time. I didn't think about this in the first service, and while I was praying, plastic was ripping. We'll pull those out together, and I want to read to you a passage of Scripture. And let's think about the love of God at the table. The Apostle Paul describes in the letter to the church at Carnath in 1 Corinthians, he describes to them the Lord's Supper. And he does so with our picture of love in such a way that's just beautiful for us to hear Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from you, or excuse me, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, as often as you drink in remember me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The pinnacle of God's love is Christ, his death, burial and resurrection. But Paul tells us that the most beautiful thing about God's love in the Lord's Supper is first and foremost, the staggering unmerited grace that God himself would send his one and only son so that his body would be broken like a loaf of bread torn in two and his blood would pour out like wine poured out of the goblet, that it would flow down for you and for me, this unmerited love. And then we learn also in this text that this love brings us into a family. He says to his disciples, as long as you together share the meal around the table, remember Remember the love of God that's bound us. But I want to finish this with this last part that Paul says because this part really makes me smile. He says, As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Brothers and sisters, the love of God on the cross 2,000 years ago was not a final act of God. It was the pinnacle act of love that invites us into his family. But the final act of God will be when Christ returns and gathers us home. And you know what we'll do? We'll put down the Lord's Supper and we'll be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will gather around his table. Why? Not because we deserved it. Not because we did anything to merit it. Not because we convinced God that we were good. But because God has loved us through Christ Jesus. And now... Until that day when He returns, I want to go and love others so that they may know about the Jesus who's coming again. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to spend just a moment in contemplation. The Bible tells us that when we come to the table, it is to be serious. We are to contemplate. We are to reflect. We are first and foremost to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, having repented of our sins and turned to Him. The Lord's Supper is for Christians, for Christ followers, for the disciples of Christ. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're, you're not a Christian, you've, you've not come to Jesus, you're not sure about that, and this is not for you today. It can be, brother or sister, it can be if you would come to Christ, but not today. Moms and dads with young children, this is not for them today. We pray and we trust that God our Father will bring them into the family through the love of Christ and that one day we will, with our children, celebrate this meal. But this is for the believer. This is for the one who knows that the body and the blood of Christ was broken because He loved us. And we eat and drink because we declare we love Him. Scripture also teaches us that we should not be casual careless in coming to the table in fact in the same passage i read to you paul would say that we do not want to come and sin because we're just drinking judgment on ourselves and so i want to invite you for just a moment i'm going to close my mouth and for just a moment i want to invite you to sit in the quietness of this room thank the lord for the love that he's given you confess any sin that is hindering that love to flow through you perfectly Prepare your hearts to respond to the love of Christ found in the bread and in the cup.